This is Patrick Attaway, and this is Demise of the Podcast. For the first time ever in a proper DAW. This is my podcast where we're talking about writing. Specifically, Charles Bukowski's writing today. We're discussing Ham on Rye. And this is an episode that I've been delaying for three or four weeks. And I am finally going to man up and do it. And if you've ever read this book, you may realize why I might not want to go delve into a very depressing book while I'm not in the best of moods. Something about summer. Some people get seasonal depression in the winter, and I tend to feel worse during the summer. And I'm not depressed today so much as just kind of burn out. Something about this three-day weekend is really messing with me. I had Friday off. So... How is everybody doing out there? I am recording in Reaper for the first time ever instead of Audacity. And I downloaded Reaper for the purpose of recording guitar shit. And I'm having a lot of fun messing around with that. But I'm still going to be mastering stuff in Audacity. And right now the sample rate is not the same as in Audacity either. So I don't know if it's going to sound as good. It might sound the same. I don't know. But uh, I'm going to find out after recording this, aren't I? Anyway, I don't have anything great to talk about in terms of housekeeping of the podcast. So I'm just going to get into Bukowski. And normally what I do is I use the first 10 minutes of the podcast to talk about bullshit going on Twitter or what have you. And I will take this moment to mention that... Price of the Trinity, my second novel, is coming out in September, and it is going to only be out in paperback initially, but I will release the Kindle version later on with the Charles Price novella as an additional value for your 99 cents. But when the novel drops in September, it will only be in paperback for at least a few weeks and then maybe in the last the second or last week in September I will release the Kindle version and I'm doing this for a few reasons one reason is if you release a Kindle version uh, you have what happened with Demise where someone is able to not even buy or read the book and they leave a, a bad review which is annoying but also with a paperback version on Amazon, as of now, it takes three or four days for you to get that in the mail. Well, the mail from Amazon. I don't think Amazon really uses the mail much anymore. But I just ordered the new print of Demise of the Trinity. And I think I put the order in on Friday. I'm not going to get it until Tuesday. So it takes a while to get paperbacks from Amazon now. So that way, no one's going to be able to, to read and review the book for the first few days. And I might get some more genuine feedback. But also, those who spend the extra money on a paperback are going to value 
the book more and they might be more likely to read it. Now, I'm not saying that there won't be people who buy it and just never read it. That obviously happens, but I've noticed that when people buy paperbacks of mine, they tend to, to actually read them. Whereas if they buy the the book for 99 cents on Kindle, or if they even get it for free on Kindle, or if they get a free digital copy from me on Twitter, they tend to not read it as much. So, that is my reasoning behind Price of the Trinity being out on paperback instead of just Kindle and paperback. So, I just want to see what happens, basically. If this is your first time listening to the podcast, I suggest you go back and you listen to, at the very least, the other episodes where I discuss Bukowski's work, because I am not a Bukowski expert. In fact, there were things that I got wrong about Bukowski in the other podcast, which I corrected in subsequent podcast. And I'm not an expert, but I do recommend you go listen to the episodes regarding Bukowski on This Is Not a Test by Michael J. Phillips. He knows a hell of a lot more than I do. I'm just here to discuss and analyze the text. So if you're here for a history lesson, I suggest you either go actually read Ham on Rye, or you go look on the many, many YouTube videos or podcast, and don't bother with mine. You can see I'm in a great mood today. I came to this book probably 2016. It was right around the time when I was working at Walmart. And I met my wife, I think, right when I just finished this book. It is very unsettling in terms of just being very bleak. It's not a happy book. Anyway, we're going to get into this, the first page, and just go from there, shall we? The first thing I remember is being under something. It was a table. I saw a table leg. I saw the legs of the people and a portion of the tablecloth hanging down. It was dark under there. I liked being under there. It must have been in Germany. I must have been between one and two years old. It was 1922. I felt good under the table. Nobody seemed to know I was there. There was sunlight under the rug and on the legs of the people. I liked the sunlight. The legs of the people were not interesting. Not like the tablecloth which hung down. Not like the table leg. Not like the sunlight. So with this opening paragraph we get classic Bukowski prose. And as I said in previous episodes, he's not afraid to to repeat a lot of the same words and sentence structures in the same paragraph. A lot of times, writers, we get into our heads, and when we review and we edit, we're like, oh shit, I used the same word here. And it, it doesn't really matter to Bukowski. He writes what he feels, and that's something that I think a lot of us should do more of. But Bukowski pulls it off. So, he's very descriptive, but in a simplistic way. You know that he's coming from the perspective of a man looking back on his life and trying to form his earliest memory. I think my earliest memory is of the big screen TV that my dad had in our house, which eventually burned down. 
and I remember watching Bambi. So according to my mother, I had a lot of old Disney movies on VHS. My dad likes to talk about how he had this massive collection of valuable comics and baseball cards. And once this house burned down, we lost all of that. What is actually interesting is that according to my mother, we didn't lose a lot of it in the fire. What happened was because of the neighborhood we lived in, uh, people came into the house after it burned and stole a lot of our shit. So uh, somehow the big screen TV survived all that. I guess it would have taken a few people to pick that up because big screen TVs back then were huge. And I don't even know how my dad got one, honestly. But he had one. He had the same one from the early 90s until, I want to say, 1997. And I don't know what happened to it after that other than it, it not working anymore. But he had it in my grandfather's house for like a year or so. I remember it was weird. In one room you had my dad's sleeper sofa and the big screen TV and the next you had my grandfather's TV. He had one of those old TVs in a wooden frame, but it didn't work, so he had a TV on top of that. And my grandfather was also the first person that I knew that had direct or dish. He had some sort of dish network or direct TV. And I, I used to beg my mother to get that because it excited me how they had so many different channels. This is far off the mark with Bukowski. I'm just sharing these old childhood memories like Bukowski does here. And in a sense, I feel the same way that Bukowski does about childhood. It's not really good memories. It's just memories. So some of them are bad. Some of them are okay. But... It's hard to pinpoint the good ones versus the bad ones and then just, just the kind of neutral minutia, you know. So there's nothing really interesting about the opening paragraph in terms of memory. It's more that Bukowski's able to access his memory and he's not really offering analysis, he's just describing him. And it falls into that category of what David Sedaris discusses in some of his interviews where he talks about how he doesn't care about the inner workings of a character's mind half the time. He wants the story. He wants the, the narrative to continue. And that's what Bukowski is giving us here. I think my favorite part of the first chapter is when Bukowski reflects on his grandfather. We got into the Model T and drove over to see my grandfather, Leonard. As we drove up and stopped, he was standing on the porch of his house. He was old, but he stood very straight. He had been an army officer in Germany and had to come to America when he heard that the streets were paved with gold. They weren't. So he became the head of a construction firm. The other people didn't get out of the car. Grandfather wiggled his finger at me. Somebody opened a door and I climbed out and walked toward him. His hair was pure white and long and his beard was pure white and long. And as I got closer, I saw that his eyes were brilliant, like blue lights watching me. I stopped a little distance away from him. Henry, he said, you and I, we know each other. Come into the house. He held out his hand, 
As I got closer, I could smell the stink of his breath. It was very strong, but he was the most beautiful man I had ever seen, and I wasn't afraid. I went into his house with him. He led me to a chair. Sit down, please. I'm very happy to see you. We went to another room. Then he came out with a little tin box. It's for you. Open it. I had trouble with the lid. I couldn't open the box. Here, let me have it. He loosened the lid and handed the tin box back to me. I lifted the lid and here was this cross, a German cross with a ribbon. Oh no, you keep it, I said. It's yours, he said. It's a little gummy badge. Thank you. You better go now. They'll be worried. It's just a really interesting interaction. And it's kind of rare that you hear a man call another man beautiful. But that little cross kind of says everything you need to know about his grandfather, I guess. But, you know, this takes place before World War II, of course. But... There's this whole kind of mythology about Bukowski being a German-American, and I discussed that earlier, but it's odd to consider that as his father struggles financially, there's this American dream that his German father, Bukowski's father, so Bukowski's grandfather, followed and he obviously prospered in this construction firm and he was able to buy himself a house that was separate from his wife. And at no point during this book, do you ever get the sense that Bukowski's father prospered in that way? I mean, he's a milkman. So there's this sense of Bukowski's grandmother abusing Bukowski's father and, him not really striving for much in his life because he becomes a milkman, but he's able to, to have a house and he has a wife and he has a son, but later on he gets a car. These are all things that are of part of the typical American dream, but at the same time during the Depression he loses his job and he pretends to have a job and in a sense, that is kind of more shameful and more disorienting for the family than him just staying at home and not working. But it's interesting that his father is obviously a fuck-up in some sense, and he takes out all this frustration onto Bukowski as a kid, and that in turn fucks up Bukowski, of course. But I can't remember if I read it on a forum or if I heard it in one of those YouTube reviews, but someone said that they don't think that Bukowski's father's abuse of him did much or shaped his, his perspective as an adult, which is entirely bullshit. But, you know, people will believe what they want to believe. But it seems like Bukowski's mother, she was very passive but at the same time, there's a scene in the book where Bukowski's father's fooling around and his, his mistress is in the house with them and Bukowski's mother comes home and starts screaming and everything. 
but she was kind of neglectful of Bukowski in that she allowed the abuse of his father to continue up until his teen years. So that's just my perspective on it, of course. But we're only in the first few pages. I'm trying to manage my time wisely on this because I spent so much time on the first 50 pages of All About the Benjamins. And I, I zoomed through post office pretty well, I think. I skipped big portions of it, but, you know. This is a writing podcast, not a book review podcast. But I found myself kind of reviewing all about the Benjamins as I went through it. So chapter two begins with, I remember the Model T sitting high, the running boards seemed friendly, and on cold days in the mornings and often at other times, my father had to fit the hand crank into the front of the engine and crank it many times in order to start the car. A man could get a broken arm doing this. It kicks back like a horse. Went for Sunday rides in the Model T when grandmother didn't visit. My parents liked the orange groves, miles and miles of orange trees, always either in blossom or full of oranges. It's a scene where his father decides to steal oranges and then this guy comes out with a gun. But, you know, there's a, a, a sense of deception in Bukowski's father and he always tries to come off as moral and upstanding to his son and is always pointing the finger at Bukowski. And if you've ever seen the film adaptation of Factotum, there is a scene where he comes home and his mother is is very pleasant and happy to see him and his father is immediately being an asshole to him, which wasn't too far off the mark. But they don't really portray Bukowski's father quite accurately, or at least the actor didn't. And Bukowski's father is selfish. He doesn't seem to actually love his wife, and he's kind of always caught up in his own world, which kind of translates to Bukowski's perspective later on, whether you realize it or not. He's always just kind of reflecting on how things could go and not really doing much about them, but Bukowski... His excuse was that he was hiding in a bottle. Uh, Bukowski's father just seemed to brood all the time. But the writing here in this chapter, it doesn't give you a sense of the classic Bukowski in the sense that he's not talking about drinking or fucking or anything like that. He's giving a, a pretty good little story here of his father forcing him and his mother to pick these oranges and how even if even if the man with the shotgun shows up they still try to go get the oranges again I wanted to skip around but I really can't skip chapter 4 it's too kind of poignant in a sense, especially considering how Bukowski turned out. It was another Sunday that we got into the Model T in search of my Uncle John. He has no ambition, said my father. I don't see how he can hold his goddamn head up and look at people in the eye. 
I wish he wouldn't chew tobacco, said my mother. He spits the stuff everywhere. If this country was full of men like him, the chinks would take over and we'd be running the laundries. John never had a chance, said my mother. He ran away from home early. At least you got a high school education. College, said my father. Where, asked my mother. The University of Indiana. Jack said you only went to high school. Jack only went to high school. That's why he gardens for the rich. Am I ever going to see my Uncle Jack, I asked. First, let's see if we can find your Uncle John, said my father. Do the chinks really want to take over the country, I asked. Those yellow devils have been waiting for centuries to do it. What stopped them is that they have to keep busy fighting the Japs. Who are the best fighters, the chinks or the Japs? Some of this old glorious racism here for you. You don't see as much racism in the later, well, in, in terms of timeline life, like, like in uh, Post Office and Factotum, you don't see a whole lot of racism in those books. But um, here we have this genuine, genuinely racist moment where Bukowski's father is perceiving the chinks, the Chinese people, as these outsiders who want to take over the country, which... I don't know how much of that was going on at the time in terms of paranoia about other than Red Scare, but I think that was later. It's hard to say when a lot of this took place because, honestly, the timeline in my head's all screwy. And you'd kind of have to look at Bukowski's time, his actual, you know, date of birth and all this shit. He was born in 1920, so you can assume that this happened in the maybe 1925 I can't think of any genuine fear of Chinese people in 1925 but who knows but it's good dialogue and one of the things that is prevalent in Pam on Rye versus women or even factotum or post office is that you have these long lines of dialogue or instead of we instead of interjecting thoughts and actions and stuff we, we just hear what the characters are saying and that's more interesting what than what they would be thinking anyway i feel like i'm coming at this sort of half-heartedly today but here we go with a conversation with Mikowski's father and aunt anna Where's John? asked my father. My aunt sat down wearily. She looked very weak, very pale. Her dress was dirty, her hair uncombed, tired, sad. We've been waiting for him. We haven't seen him for quite some time. Where'd he go? I don't know. He just left on his motorcycle. All he does, said my father, is think about his motorcycle. Is this Henry Jr.? Yes. He just stares. He's so quiet. That's the way we want him. Still water runs deep. Not with this one. The only thing that runs deep with him are the holes in his ears. Throughout this book, I get so pissed off at Bukowski's father, I'm going to string him up by his ankles and hold him off a balcony. I mean, the way he treats Bukowski. Is there is it any 
fucking surprised that Bukowski turned out the way that he did with a father like that, where he's like four or five years old, maybe younger or older, but still very young, and his father's basically calling him a dullard. He wants him to, to be quiet. He doesn't want him to have a thought of his own, yet he puts him down for that. The two girls took out their slices of bread and walked outside and sat on the stoop to eat them. They hadn't spoken to us. I thought they were quite nice. They were thin like their mother, but they were still quite pretty. How are you, Anna? asked my mother. I'm all right. Anna, you don't look well. I think you need food. Why doesn't your boy sit down? Sit down, Henry. He likes to stand, said my father. It makes him strong. He's getting ready to fight the chinks. Don't you like the Chinese, my, ass, my aunt asked me. No, I answered. Well, Anna, how are things going? So, we get Aunt Anna's sob story. And then, it's all about John and blah, 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 blah. And then you find out John is a rapist. Anna, my mother, asked, Are you sure that John will come back? He'll come back when he gets tired of the hens. John loves his children, said Anna. I hear the cops are after him for something else. What? Rape. Rape? Yes, Anna. I heard about it. He was riding his motorcycle one day. This young girl was hitchhiking. She got onto the back of his motorcycle, and as they rode along, all of a sudden, John saw an empty garage. He drove in there, closed the door, and raped the girl. How'd you find that out? Find out? The cops came and told me. They asked me where he was. Did you tell them? For what for? To have him go to jail and evade his responsibilities? That's just what he'd want. I never thought of it that way. Not that I'm for rape. Sometimes a man can't help what he does. What? I mean, after having the children, and when the t his type of life, the worry and all... I don't look so good anymore. He saw a young girl. He looked good. She looked good to him. She got on his bike, you know. She put her arms around him. What? Asked my father. How'd you like to be raped? I guess I wouldn't like it. Well, I'm sure the young girl didn't like it either. It's interesting to contrast this little bit of dialogue with the scene where Bukowski kind of sort of maybe rapes a woman in post office. Well, Henry Chinaski does. So, here we go. We're not getting the sense that the men in Bukowski's life are worth a damn. I mean, his uncle is a rapist. His father is also a piece of shit in his own way. So, the beginning of chapter 5, we have, I had begun to dislike my father. He was always angry about something. I don't get the sense that Bukowski ever really liked his father. Now, there's a short story, and I think it's in... It's not in Hot Water Music, is it? It's a short story about his father dying and him having to sell the house. And, of course, Bukowski got a good bit of money from the sale of the house, and he has sex with a woman in his... I think his parents' bedroom, which is kind of odd. But... He doesn't really know how to feel about his father's death. And here you see that even at that young age, he had grown to hate him, and then later he's sort of apathetic toward him. 
Wherever we went, we got into arguments with people. But he didn't appear to frighten most people. They often just stared at him calmly, and he became more furious. Getting the sense of a Napoleon complex here. If we ate out, which was seldom, he always found something wrong with the food and sometimes refused to pay. There's fly shit in this whipped cream. What the hell kind of place is this? Yeah. So, like I said, Bukowski's dad is a piece of shit. You can always tell people's true character by how they tr treat the wait staff. I didn't have any friends at school. Didn't want any. I felt better being alone. I sat on a bench and watched the others play and they looked foolish to me. During lunch one day I was approached by a new boy. He wore knickers, was cross-eyed and pigeon-toed. I didn't like him. He didn't look good. He sat on the bench next to me. Hello, my name's David. I didn't answer. He opened his lunch bag. I got peanut butter sandwiches, he said. What do you have? Peanut butter sandwiches. I got a banana, too, and some potato chips. Want some potato chips? I took some. He had plenty. They were crisp and salty. The sun shone right through them. They were good. Can I have some more? All right. I took some more. He even had jelly on his peanut butter sandwiches. It dripped out and ran over his fingers. David didn't seem to notice. Where do you live, he asked. Virginia Road. I live on Pickford. We can walk home together after school. Take some more potato chips. Who's your teacher? Miss Columbine. I have Miss Reed. I'll see you after class. We'll walk home together. Why did he wear those knickers? What did he want? I really didn't like him. He took some more of his potato chips. Yeah, little kids, even I was a little shit when I was a little kid. And if I'd seen a kid like David, I probably wouldn't have been very nice to him either. Not that Bukowski's really being mean here. He's just not being very pleasant. He's not calling him names or throwing dirt in his face, but he's taking his potato chips and silently judging this kid for what he's wearing and the fact that he doesn't seem to have a whole lot of self-awareness, but again, he's a kid. And it's interesting. I think it's because of our parents and their expectations of us that we seem to hold other people to those same expectations. And Bukowski is viewing the world through his father's eyes rather than his own, in a sense. That afternoon after school, he found me and began walking along beside me. You never told me your name, he said. Henry, I answered. As we walked along, I noticed a whole gang of boys, first graders following us. At first, they were half a block behind us, and then they closed the gap to several yards behind us. What do they want, I asked David. He didn't answer, just kept walking. Seems like David knows. Hey, knicker shitter, one of them yelled. Your mother make you shit in those knickers? Pigeon toe, ho ho, pigeon toe, cross eye, get ready to die. Then they circled us. Who's your friend? Does he kiss your rear end? These are very interesting insults, I must say. Does he kiss your rear end? You know, I've heard of people eating ass, but just kissing someone's ass, I, I still don't really understand that. Brown noser, I get it. But 
kissing someone's ass. I, I don't understand. One of them had David by the collar. He threw them in, him onto the lawn. David stood up. The boy got down behind him on his hands and knees. The other boy shoved him and David fell over backwards. Another boy rolled him over and rubbed his face in the grass. Then they stepped back. David got up. He didn't make a sound, but the tears were rolling down his face. The largest boy walked up to him. We don't want you in our school, sissy. Get out of our school. He punched David in the stomach. David bent over, and as he did, the boy brought his knee up to David's face. David fell. He had a bloody nose. I think that David was nice to Henry because he needed some protection. And Henry just sat there and watched David get the shit beat out of him by these first graders. And I don't know that really anything would have happened differently had he stepped in and helped David. But it it is sad that Henry just sits there and watches him. He doesn't go and get help. I don't even know that an adult would come help, honestly. But you have to wonder about these other kids and their perspective. We don't want you in our school, sissy. As if he has a say in what school he goes to. Or if him being at that school has any bearing on on them. I I don't really understand it. But I, I don't understand kid logic either. Then the boy circled me. Your turn now. They kept circling and as they did I kept turning. There were always some of them behind me. Here I was loaded with shit and I had to fight. I was terrified and calm at the same time. I didn't understand their motive. They kept circling and I kept turning. It went on and on. They screamed things at me but I didn't hear what they said. Finally they backed off and went away down the street. David was waiting for me. We walked down the sidewalk towards his place on Pickford Street. Then we were in front of his house. I've got to go in now. Goodbye. Goodbye, David. He went in and I heard his mother's voice. David, look at your knickers and shirt. They are torn and full of grass stains. You do this almost every day. Tell me, why do you do it? David didn't answer. I asked you a question. Why do you do this to your clothes? I can't help it, Mom. You can't help it, you stupid boy. I heard her beating him. David began to cry and she beat him harder. I stood on the front lawn and listened. After a while, the beating stopped. I could hear David sobbing. Then he stopped. His mother said, Now I want you to practice your violin lesson. So everyone in this world at this point in America is really fucking poor and sad, it seems. And they take all their frustrations out on their children and children take their frustrations out on each other. So uh, I don't know if things are different now, but I hear, I don't know. I don't see as many people beating their kids, but I know it happens. I also know that plenty of men beat their wives and their girlfriends these days. It's still pretty common, but Jesus, you'd like to think that we've, progressed as a society and I don't know that we really have so the gist of these opening chapters where Bukowski is at school is that he gets picked on a lot and he gets in fights and that's really all you get for a long time and he kind of talks about his father abusing him and stuff so we get our 
first abuse scene in chapter 8. I heard my father come in. He always slammed the door, walked heavily, and talked loudly. He was home. After a few moments, the bedroom door opened. He was six feet two, a large man. Everything vanished. The chair I was sitting in, the wallpaper, the walls, all my thoughts. He was the dark covering the sun. The violence of him made everything else utterly disappear. He was all ears, nose, and mouth. I couldn't look him in the eyes. There was only his red, angry face. All right, Henry, into the bathroom. I walked in and he closed the door behind us. The walls were white. There was a bathroom mirror and a small window. The screen black and broken. There was the bathtub and the toilet and the tiles. He reached and took down the razor strope, which hung from a hook. It was going to be the first of many such beatings, which would recur more and more often. Always, I felt, without real reason. All right, take down your pants. I took my pants down. Pull down your shorts. I pulled them down. Then he laid on the strop. The first blow inflicted more shock than pain. The second hurt more. Each blow which followed increased the pain. When I was a kid, I was in pre-K. And according to my mother, the reason behind this method of uh, inflicting pain and punishing me for what I'd done was because I had hit my assistant teacher. I don't remember doing this, but uh, apparently uh, I got sent to the principal's office for it, and I don't remember going to the principal's office, but my mother's uncle, Henry, he worked in the shop in our business, and he made a wooden paddle for me, and he wrote my name on it. So I think that my grandmother showed up to the school, and I think she may have hit me with it. I don't remember being hit with it very often, but I remember my mother chasing me with it, and I ran behind the couch at one point. I cannot remember my mother ever actually hitting me with it, though. I think it was just the threat of it that scared the shit out of me. But I remember my other grandmother, my paternal grandmother, uh, insisting that my mother leave the room while she hit me one time. And I really don't know what happened that was so uh, terrible. But I do know that my grandmother was supposed to be there to pick me up for the weekend, but she didn't. She sat on the couch and she complained about me for about an hour. And then before she left, she took my pants down and she spanked me. And I don't mean she just took my pants down, my underwear too. So there I was, exposed, maybe six years old, maybe seven, and she hit my ass. So it is a very humiliating situation in that you're a child and you're being forced to be nude and someone's hitting your bare ass. You know, I don't think, out of all the terrible things that, my dad did. I don't think he ever did that to me. I don't think he ever forced me to basically strip down so he could hit me. 
and that that is a memory that makes reading this book even more difficult because the idea of being forced to go into the bathroom and take your underwear off so you can be hit with a basically a belt is not fun in the south uh, there's a tradition of making children go and pick out switches from a bush and having the uh, your parent hit you. So when I was a kid, I was at my great-grandparents' house, and my great-grandmother made me go out and get a switch. And I didn't pick one that was good enough, so she picked one, and she hit me with it. And the switch itself is not painful. It's the briars that are that is on the switch. It cuts open your leg a little bit. So that's another childhood memory that I have to deal with when I read this book. And I loved my great-grandmother. A lot of people talk shit about her, and that's the only time I can remember her ever disciplining me. And everyone maintains that I was a good kid up until elementary school, of course. I did some crazy shit in elementary school. So we have this whole scene where Henry's being hit by his dad. And the language here, it, it's pretty vivid. The way he described his father, he was the dark covering the sun. The violence of it made everything else utterly disappear. He was all ears, nose, and mouth. That is very vivid. And you have to consider the perspective of a child who fears their parent that much. It's a terrible thing to fear your parents. It really is. They're, they're supposed to be the ones who are nurturing and raising you. And to fear one of your parents is, is living in hell, really. Um, he was no longer there. I became aware of the little window again in the mirror. There was the razor strap hanging from the hook long and brown and twisted. I couldn't bend over to pull up my pants or my shorts, and I walked to the door awkwardly, my clothes around my feet. I opened the bathroom door, and there was my mother standing in the hall. It wasn't right, I told her. Why, why didn't you help me? The father, she said, is always right. Then my mother walked away. I went to the bedroom, dragging my clothes around my feet, and sat on the edge of the bed, the mattress hurt me. Outside, through the rear screen, I could see my father's roses growing. They were red and white and yellow and large and full. The sun was very low, but not yet set, and the last of it slanted through the rear window. I felt that even the sun belonged to my father, and I had no right to it because it was shining upon my father's house. I was like his roses. Something that belonged to him, but not to me. I think this is a good stopping point for the podcast. I don't know if it's too long or too short or whatever, but in terms of reading at least, um, it's just so difficult to get through this and to read about his father's abuse of him and just the, the general attitude. Like It is a terrible thing to feel like you're in a hostile environment when you're home. And a lot of us experience that. And thankfully, I didn't really have to feel that very often because I lived with my mom growing up. But it, 
I, I guess I can be honest about this now, but when I was a kid, after my parents got divorced, my dad moved in with my grandfather and my first stepmother was abusive more so mentally than physically and she treated me like shit they were they weren't married for too long i think they were married for 4 years maybe but i was also very afraid of my grandfather now my grandfather came from a different generation and i don't remember him ever lifting a hand to hurt my stepsister and my half sister they were both younger than me and he always said that you treat girls um, differently than boys so you'd you'd be rough with boys so they grow up to be men and I feared him so when my I would have to go every other weekend to see my dad and I wanted to see my dad despite everything I, I loved my dad but I really feared my grandfather and my stepmother and I love my grandfather. I think he's a, a great, badass guy. I don't agree with everything he's done or everything he said, but I love him. But my dad didn't really understand why I never wanted to come over. And he thought my mother was trying to, to pull me away from him. But really, it was just that fear of hostility. And it got worse when uh, my stepsister got older and my stepmother would demean me and have my step my stepsister demean me and sort of join in on it it was terrible so when i read about bakowski's father it's 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 a little too, too close to home in some instances and to me the book gets a lot more intriguing in the later half in terms of genuine classic Wachowski in the first half is just really hard to get through especially when he's in his teen years now the parts about him having acne and going to the hospital those are very interesting Um, but it's just so much to get through everyone treats each other like shit nobody's nice to each other except for Wachowski and his nurse later on so It is not a book that you want to read on a pleasant Sunday afternoon, and yet here I am. Which, by the way, I didn't record yesterday because it was the 4th of July and there were fireworks. And I just didn't feel like it. I didn't feel like doing it today either, but I I feel burnt out, as I said earlier. So, I'm not burnt out on podcasting. I'm just burnt out in general. And tomorrow I've got work. And I'm actually looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to getting back in the the swing of things it's i don't i don't know what it is i've been having these weird dreams and waking up around 10 on this three-day weekend so it's odd anyway enough of that i thank you for listening this has been patrick Gadaway, and this is the ben this has been demise of the podcast happy reading goodbye